Hello, this is Fiona, one of the co-hosts of the DMs Book Club, a weekly book club podcast where we read about some Dungeon Dragons and discuss how we might include them in our role-playing campaigns. For this episode, I decided to do something a little bit different in honour of the spooky season. I recorded a playthrough of Night of the Living Dead, a solo quest adventure set in the Forgotten Realms. Published by TSR in 1989, Night of the Living Dead is part of the Catacomb Gamebook series, which, according to the blurb, represents the ultimate challenge in role-playing adventure. Through lavish illustrations, readers would journey from chamber to chamber in search of the precious object of their quest. Analytical powers would be tested to the utmost, as readers must decide how to deal with the weird and wondrous creatures and artifacts they encounter, using a simplified D12 rule system. I'm just going to start the playthrough by saying naturally there will be spoilers for this adventure, although I have abridged some parts of it, as well as noting some content warnings for the story. Content warnings for this solo adventure include themes of death, peril, violence, memory loss, self-harm, suicide, and, naturally, undead creatures. Thanks again. And I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, I guess we'll start then. I think one of the things I always find in D&D is that you always need at least one other person to run a game with or to play with. And what I've been trying to find out or do some research on is looking for RPGs or adventure modules in general, which you can do uh, by yourself, like a solo RPG or a solo mission and adventure, etc. Obviously, there's quite a lot of solo RPGs, which I've done quite a few on on my other podcast. But when I was looking for specifically D&D related modules, there's some very slim pickings. I know there are out there. Don't write in. I know they're out there. But I couldn't really find anything easily. There's lots of toolboxes and sort of a, a guide to be like, how would you change these things, which is great, but nothing off the shelf, nothing quick. But I was recommended this book called Night of the Living Dead, which is a solo quest published by Catacomb Books. Uh, it's a TSR product by Alan Varney. And having a quick read for it, it looks a bit like a choose-your-own-adventure, but with the fact that you have a character, pre-generated character, and you do some dice rolling. So I thought, it's spooky season. I thought I'd give it a go and see how I can survive. I will say I haven't really read ahead, so I don't know anything about it. We'll see how far we get. I have the impression that as a choose-your-own-adventure, it might end very quickly. The PDF is about 160 pages. Uh, there's a map right at the beginning, which is quite cool. Uh, oh, it's double-columned. Boring. <laughs> but this is the thing. At the end, and I'm sure I'll read it whilst I'm going through as well, there is a cutout, or there was a cutout character sheet. And you had two different characters you could play the white knight and the grey knight and what you would do is if you had the physical copy you would tear this out fold it over and use it as a bookmark you know, use it as a way to note down anything you uncovered or tick things off and that's pretty cool actually you know rather than encouraging you to make up or just like imagine stuff you actually have two different knights and there isn't much to them but I assume that's part of the story in the sense of like you don't know your name, you don't remember much about yourself. I will say what it is. So I'm looking at both of them just now. Both of them look very similar. It's two uh, white guys with beards. The white knight looks a bit more put together. The grey knight is a bit more disheveled. Uh, but interestingly enough, they basically have these like little bits of notes saying, if you get to these sections, read these sections in order one at a time when the text tells you. There's something called memory trace. 
So the white knight, I think, has memory trace A, and the grey knight has memory trace B. And I think when you get to those parts in the adventure, you remember bits about your past and then you take them off. That's pretty cool. Uh, you've got the same amount of unlife points, so that might be a bit of a spoiler to what this adventure is about. But essentially, as I've understood it, when you attack something, you roll a d12, and certainly for memory trace A, so with the white knight, you hit the creature on a roll of eight or less, and you inflict seven points of damage with each strike. Similarly, on the memory trace B, the grey knight, you hit on a roll of seven or less, but you inflict eight points of damage. So yeah, so the only dice you need is a d12, and I'm excited because d12s are my favourite dice. So yeah, so this first came out in May 1989. All characters in this book are fictitious. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is pure coincidental. Imagine having a, that kind of disclaimer for every RPG you play. Like, <laughs> I guess because you're drawing inspiration from real life for certain maybe NPCs and stuff. But having to have a, put a disclaimer in it for every session you ever run. <laughs> okay, so the introduction goes as follows. The watchers on the wall did not see the dead. Although two miles off and marching closer, the dead army aroused no alarm. Guardsmen shivered in scale mail on the battlements of Castle Waterdeep. They huddled over bewitched torches that no wind could extinguish. It was half past eleven in Waterdeep, that great coastal metropolis. Proof against attack for centuries, it now soundly slept. In silence, the dead kept on. Now and then one limped, dragging its withered foot over the rocky path shredding the papery flesh and scratching the bone beneath. Other dead jerked to the left with a step, fighting the twists of their spines. Sometimes a vampire bat flew overhead, and the dead looked up reverently. Isn't it beautiful? One lover said to another as they both gazed up at the sky. Dense clouds billowing in from the trackless sea made the night a powdery grey, but the young man and woman pretended they saw the moon. Yes, the other replied. Pretty. And so, not white, truly, what is that off-white colour? They both fell silent as a lighter walked past, a fat youth wearing a black cap and holding a torch twice his size. The young guildsman headed for the house of the homeless, not far off in the cemetery. At night, Waterseep's City of the Dead is dimly lit at best, but the pauper's tomb needed new torch at all hours. In those endless catacombs, day and night meant nothing. The lovers watched the pudgy lighter waddle towards the mausoleum. After he passed, they embraced. They kept talking as though their conversation mattered. 11.45. Fifteen minutes left. A mile away now, the dead reached torchlight. It showed the pallor of off-white skin stretched drum-tight over rib cages, sunken eyes squinting in the light, and teeth smiling perpetually without gums or lips to mask them. Five minutes and not a moment longer, I told my master I would be back at the guild hall before midnight. The lovers huddled closer as they walked. The crypts in the City of the Dead could not block out the biting winds. They wandered towards the lights around a Garen statue. Ah! The man started back. Look out! It's a grave. What? In a cemetery? She laughed. By the gods, call the watch at once. In truth, this looks fresh. They never bury people in the grounds here, do they? There's no marker. Only a pile of dirt by the path, just under this tree. How do you know it is a grave? And if it is, what of it? As they say, the city of the dead hides many secrets. Come now, the woman said, pulling him down the path. 
In the torchlight at the base of the monument, they kissed. He thought his love could never weaken. Two minutes to midnight. The lovers walked slowly towards the gate. On the path ahead, near the entrance to the house of the homeless, lay a pile of cloth. They neared it, and both realised with such suddenness that they felt almost calm that this was the lighter, the stout boy with the black cap. He lay motionless, except for the rhythm of his slow breathing. The woman knelt beside him, and then she looked up and stopped. From the crypt wall billowed a cloud of grey smoke, thick in the doorway, and rapidly thinned to invisibility as it approached them. The smoke spread like oil across the path, floating as high as a leafless tree, and moved deliberately towards the gates to the city. Something is wrong, the woman thought. She and the man stepped back as the smoky vapour approached. Then she knew it. The wind was blowing in off the harbour in icy gusts. This smoke drifted rapidly towards the buildings below, against the wind. Run, she cried. They turned and ran as though pursued by dragons. But the vapour flowed over them easily, and then came an overwhelming odour of decay. She choked and fell, but kept going, crawling. She could no longer see her lover. Her fingers tingled, then she couldn't feel them at all. Lights danced in her eyes, and sounds played in her ears. Then, worst of all, words seeped into her mind, even as the vapour seeped into her lungs. It spoke to her, or seemed to. The effluvium. Do you like it? It is our weapon of vengeance. All who live are helpless in its influence. Sleep now, and the effluvium will provide your nightmares. Sleep until we waken, in time to see your city ruined. Then, you will die, and we will live. That is the justice of the unliving. A woman reached the base of Agaran's statue. Others lay on its steps. Lovers and city watchmen and rogues. In the distance, a monument to the city's warriors, a scene of heroic battle, triumph over hordes of barbarians, hobgoblins and orcs, loomed through the smoke, and then the effluvian billowed up stronger than ever, eclipsing her view. With her last conscious thought, the woman despaired. No one alive can fight this, she thought. What can protect us now? Life is gone, death not yet come. And so you wait. You cannot taste the dirt that clogs your throat. You barely feel the moisture trails that worms coil about your fingers. With no coffin to shelter this unliving burial, you cannot move to hear the rustle of leathery skin against armour, nor smell the root-choked earth in your nostrils. Yet you sense life above you. You sense the light, rapid footfalls of children, lovers on slow strolls, the halting gait of city elders. You yearn for the life pulsing in their veins. Even the grass over your shallow grave seems to throb with life. And farther above, their life spirits shine in your awareness like fireflies. But below them, half a ton of earth weighing on your chest, you suffocate. And wait. In the first weeks of your burial, you will learn to adjust time. You speed your perception so that sparrows slide forward in mid-air and you have long moments to savour their every heartbeat. Then, slowing your perceptions, you watch plants writhe and grow, whilst the sun and moon drop across the sky in turn, like beads down a string. 
all the while you wait. Once the dirt falls away from your left hand, is that air, you think? Clawed feet touch you, the first contact you've had with living flesh in... How long? There's an electric touch, teeth nip at your flesh, the tainted flesh no worm could eat. It's a weasel. More dirt falls away. You can move your hand now. The animal crawls onto your body, its heartbeat loud as a drum in your ears. When you hasten your awareness, it seems to slow. You strike. Your fingers clench on matted fur. The weasel shrieks, twists, bite, but you feel nothing except your own desperation. Life! Treasure above all, you think. You cannot bear to let this living spirit depart. Yet, though you do it no harm, though you slow time until each day crawls by like a century, in the end, the weasel's life escapes you, even when its body could not. So fragile. You once possessed that sweet, fragile gift of life. Or rather, you kept its custody until it was taken from you. The weasel lives no more, but you cannot bear to release it. Waiting, you speed time into a headlong pitch. Slow thoughts grow like trees in your mind, whilst real tree roots squirm past you. Groundwater, seeping down from seasonal rainfall, hits your undecaying flesh, and you feel the impact like hard rain. You note distantly that the weasel is now only a skeleton. And then, the weasel speaks to you. Quiet down here, isn't it? Remarkably, you feel no surprise. So, you think, here it is, at last. The darkness, the suffocating closeness of the earth, the endless solitude and paralysis. At last, these torches have twisted your mind upon itself. Your own subconscious mind speaks. It's fearsome to think how easily your spirit, disciplined for decades in a great cause, shatters after the isolation of what? Five years? One year? You try to recall the nature of that great cause. You can ignore me, says the weasel, but I don't see what good it will do. You mean to speak, but soil traps your tongue. It does not matter, for thought serves a speech. What are you? you ask. Just a weasel. How can you speak? I don't. You just make me talk in your mind. I guess everyone needs a friend. I... I cannot believe my mind would speak so. This is magic. Maybe so, says the weasel. Maybe some of your magic seeped into me. Does it matter? Magic of mine? Sure. It imitates what you were in life. You must have known you have it. The magic of the undead. You avoid thinking of the word for so long. How you loathe them. Vampires, ghouls, ghosts, zombies, all the rest. Most feared of monsters, animated corpses and hideous spirits. Travesties of life. You, their lifelong foe, are now one of the undead. Numb with horror, you rein in your coursing thoughts. Perhaps you can slow your perceptions and avoid facing the truth. The clouds and stars hurtle across the sky like meteors, yet you only draw out the torment. And the most dreadful torture is not knowing why. How did it happen? You scream silently to the weasel, to anyone. Don't remember, eh? You do not. Perhaps some curse has driven away memory, 
the same curse that keeps your own death at bay. You must be the toy of some malicious deity. A deity? There, there, there was a god. You served him. You were a great warrior in the cause of justice. A paladin known for purity and courage. And then, pretty obviously, something happened, says the weasel. You almost crush its skull in frustration. The recollection lingers so close yet out of your reach. In its absence, another idea arises. You could pull the skull to your neck, soar away with sharp teeth. Dare you end this unlife of yours? Would it even work? Give it a try, says the weasel. Even in your slowed perceptions, your hand inches up unbearably slowly. For a moment, you experience a stream of sensation, faces and sounds. You dismiss it as hallucination. Now you dig at the dirt, and the skull's teeth scrape on your breastplate over your collarbone. You dig away dirt, and now your neck, the earth on your chest lightens. In your clogged ears, you hear a trumpet-like blare urging you up. Like an awakened sleeper, you start in surprise and your senses slip back to a normal time rate. The dirt in the grave is lifting away. The dust falls on your dry cheeks. At last, your long wait nears an end. Whoa, there's a lot to unpack, isn't there? Oh, I'm going to have to put some trigger warnings at the beginning of this episode. Oh. So, in this adventure, you play a warrior of the undead and fight against other undead. You're the main character of the story. Well, that's good. Your decisions govern its course and its ending. All you need to play the game is a pencil, a 12-sided die, which I have, and a plentiful supply of luck and skill. <laughs> I, had to, I had to switch over the page then. This book is divided into sections with numbered lettered codes, such as 86a and 100 do not read this book straight ah so it's like a choose your own adventure type thing okie dokie sometimes the text is accompanied with a picture usually on the page opposite the section study the picture whilst reading the text in the illustration you decide whether to talk to or fight any creatures you see examine objects that capture your eye if something you want to examine isn't listed amongst your choices it is of no use to you in your quest Ah, that's good. It's not one of those um, it's not like the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy game (laughs) where you have to type out all the choices By making choices, you guide the story to its end. Try and bring about the best possible ending to your adventure. There are many endings, and you may play until you find them all. Soon you will learn your immediate goal, but your long-range goal is obvious. Send your spirit to a peaceful rest, or return it to true life. Regardless, you must end your torment of undeath. Alright, straightforward. Character, you play a paladin, a warrior knight in the cause of good, who has somehow joined the ranks of the undead. You do not remember how this happened or anything of your past life. You actually may choose to become one of two different characters. Their situations are alike, but their pasts are very different. Fine, fine, fine. So, hmm. Okay, so we've got the white paladin and the grey paladin, who are very similar in uh, stats. So the white paladin has a greater chance of hitting, like barely, and does seven points of damage, whereas the other, the grey knight, a little less chance of hitting, but does eight points of damage. So I think I'm going to go with the Grey Knight, so that's Memory Trace B. I'm going to use that one. Combat. In your quest, you'll encounter many enemies. You do not have to fight them all, but sometimes combat is the only way to your goal. The game uses one 12-sided die to determine the battle outcome. Of course, I have a d12, so that's fine. When fighting an enemy, you roll the die to determine when you strike the foe or you struck yourself. 
The number needed to hit an enemy is given on your bookmark. If you roll that number or less on the die, you hit your foe. If you roll higher, your blow misses. Other creatures to hit numbers are listed in the combat table on page 160. Oh, if you roll the given number or less for the creature... Ah, right. Anytime there's a hit, I've got to roll a d12 and... So, anytime that I have to roll to hit or a creature hits me, roll a d12 and I've got to get the number equal to or under on the sheet. Easy enough. The successful strike does damage expressed as unlife points. I have 40 unlife hit points. Okay. Alternative die rolls. A die face is printed at the bottom left of each left-hand page in the book. When you need to roll a die, flip the pages of the book randomly. Your roll is the die number shown at the bottom of the page you stop on. That's quite good, actually. If you don't have a d12, which I can imagine back in the, the late 1980s, you might not have a d12. Hmm, that's quite cool. Memory traces. Your paladin begins the adventure with no memories of their past, but as they wander, their surroundings trigger flashes of recollection. During the adventure, the text will sometimes tell you to read the next section of your memory trace. First time you are told this, turn to the first section number listed under the memory trace on your bookmark. Uh, that will give you a first fragment of the memory, and it will say return to the story. After reading that section, check it off on the thing. Alright, so I've got to basically check it off. That's almost like a side, side story, like a little bit of a meta-commentary. That's quite cool. You have 24 hours to find as many pieces as possible of an artifact called the Staff of Waterdeep. The more pieces you find in that time, the better chance of defeating the liches who oppose you and putting your soul to peace. But any other information you gain may also help. So already, <laughs> it's quite funny, it told, it was like, you'll find out what your main purpose is, and then it just told me, you have to go get this artifact, the Staff of Waterdeep, within 24 hours. Your adventure begins at midnight, and it ends the following midnight. You spend time moving from one ward of the city to the other, exploring as many locations. Remove the third bookmark and mark down time as you explore. A device will tell you how much time you've spent at each location. For convenience, time is measured in half and full hours. Makes sense. On your bookmark, there are four evidence boxes, lettered A through D. When you discover something of interest, the text may instruct you to mark one of these boxes. Mark it gently in pencil so you can erase it between games. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, you've got possessions as well. Number of spaces indicates carrying capacity, and you may wear up to two magical rings and carry eight other objects. God, okay, fine, fine, fine. All right, let's see. I have... I think I've got everything I need. Ooh. I can see right at the bottom of the time schedule, where it's the next midnight, so when you finish, it says turn to section 120A. So that's, that's probably the ending for that. And it does say on the bookmark, Staff of Waterdeep, check off pieces, and there are... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve pieces. I will say, it already says in my possessions I've got something called a Cerebricure, Bricure? a magical sword, and my weasel skull. Okay, um, so let's continue then. Deep, hollow cracks resound about you. The tree roots, as big around as your arm, snap like the wings of birds. Earth flies up in a mass, and you feel vertigo as gravity bends. You rise from your grave, armour clinking and joints creaking. As magical energies deposit you on a bed of soft grass, you reach up with your free hand. Gloved fingers scrape dust from your dry eyeballs. You look up to see a cloudy sky, a leafless oak and a lich. You shy back in horror. A lich, a skeletal wizard sustained by necromatic sorcery, most evil and powerful of the undead. And you have no sword, no weapon at all. How will you destroy such a monster? 
Whilst you lie frozen in fear, the lich gestures with its desiccated arms. Magical words echo in your mind as though you are hearing the mage chant them. Its robes, once luxurious but now threadbare and rotting, hang like old curtains. They rustle with every gesture, the only real sound the lich makes. Except for that... rattling? You locate the sound. It comes from a small carved box strapped to the lich's bony upper arm. Inwardly, you shiver to see the phylactery, the telltale sign of a lich's packed with dark forces. That simple box sustains the wizard's unlife. Should you try and tear it away? Don't be a fool, says the weasel. See what's going on first. The undead wizard completes its spell, then speaks in your mind. Your will is mine. It begins, do as I tell you. The lich seems oblivious to the weasel school's speech. Just as you thought, the weasel must be your own mind talking to itself, inaudible to all others. But the lich also seems unaware that you are not under its power. Though you are undead, you have not fallen into undeath's evil grasp. You still long to fight the lich. You could, even now, launch an attack on it. But such a foolhardy lunge without weapons would mean your instant destruction. Better to let the mage think it controls you, whispers the weasel. Maybe it'll say something you can use to kill it. The lich hears none of this. You are in a cemetery. It is winter solace year of our prince. How long have you lain below? You remember nothing. I am Abraxar. I have raised you to serve me. Not long ago, I attempted to secure a magical weapon known as the Staff of Waterdeep. In touching it, I triggered its defences and charms. It broke apart into twelve components, and those pieces hear a sardonic note in the way the lich says the word artifact. Why does this simple word sound so foreboding? Why so occupied? I point you to search the city and find as many pieces of the stuff as you can. Questions fill your mind, but as in the grave you cannot speak them through your dirt-clogged throat. You try thinking your words. What artifact? Why choose me? Why says the lich, cutting off your thoughts. Attend to what I choose to tell and no more. My collaborator, Horant, also seeks the star, but like me, is unable to leave the artifact. His undead agents seek the pieces as will you. Unfortunately, Horant has more power to spare than I, so his agents outstrip you in strength and numbers. Do not trust Harald, and you must not trust his agents. Yet, if chance offers, acquire those pieces of stuff they have found. I believe Harald has already secured some pieces, so you cannot gain them all. But the more you find, the better you serve me. You feel compelled to ask, but how can these undead wander the streets of the living? 
The lich sounds amused. Look around you. You look. Bare streets and shrubs, marbled crypts, wide sidewalks of mortared brick. You find you recognise the city of the dead. But what is that gas? Clouds of vapour curl as though alive, even permeating the walls of the crypt. The effluvian, a magical gas that now sweeps over the city, sending all who live into nightmarish sleep. Whilst they slumber, our legions ransack their homes for every magical possession. These items power our construct far below. You've never heard of such magic and your mind reels. But if you can do this, what more could you desire? What can your artifact give you that this powerful sorcery cannot? Life. Life and death. The unliving for a thousand miles. Around perhaps ten thousand approach water deep to join us. We approach the ultimate reward and the utmost revenge on the living. In one stroke, we gain true life, and in the same moment, we destroy the city. Awestruck, you realise that this monster is quite insane, and yet you believe, without question, that it speaks the truth. But the staff of Waterdeep holds the power to destroy our plan. Serve me well, bring me the pieces of the staff, and you too. As if in reply, your chest burns more strongly with the need to draw a breath. Your eyes scrape within their sockets. You feel the crunch of graveyard dirt in your mouth. Yes, life, sensation, the pulse of blood through your veins, the taste of apples and cinnamon and ginger. Life above all, or if not life, then a final rest from longing for it. But you cannot take part in the lich's plan, whatever the reward. To you, a paladin, turning to evil is a worse and more final torment than undeath. You must fight this monster, if not with a sword, then with teeth and fingernails. You gather yourself to leap. But then the weasel says, Wrong, wrong, wrong. This thing is sending you to find the very article that wrecks its whole scheme. Play along. Abraxa pulls several strange objects from its robes. Watching that hideous skeletal form, those unnatural trembling movements, but you fight within yourself, against your own nature. At last, you speak within your mind. I will search for the staff, you tell the lich. I have nothing to help me find the pieces, and no weapon with which to fight for them. But I swear to pursue my mission to its end, or die in the final death in the attempt. Hmm. Turn to 8A to begin the adventure. the lich says in your mind. The monster rests a heavy broadsword point first in the dirt by your grave, whilst the other hand holds up a shrunken head. This cerebral will locate and analyse magical energies. It is most valuable. If you endanger it, you will suffer my wrath. You reluctantly take the cerebral by the wisp of its hair. Is it alive? you ask, examining its wrinkled, apple-dry skin. Not enough to matter. 
the lich continues, This sword is magical and will strike down any undead creature except myself. It adds, whilst handing you the sword, Though the lich believes you to be in its control, it clearly overlooks no precaution. Search for pieces of the staff around and outside the city. It is now midnight. You have until the next midnight way may join us at the underground artifact. See how our plan commences. There I will give you a further assignment. But for now, you need not know what. If you have trouble in your search, Whirlpool? But, you begin, but the weasel skull whispers, don't push your luck. Ask something important. You sort through a hundred questions and then ask, what should I do when I've collected the pieces? The cerebral cure will take care of that. Or seek the artifact in the house of the homeless nearby. Now, time hastens. What further items or details do you need to perform well in my service? Ask, for I grow impatient. And then I've got a list of things that I can ask or get the lich to give me. So I've got the shrunken head, I've got the magical sword, I've got an ornate ring, a simple ring, a crown of phylactery, a plot to destroy Waterdeep or the Whirlpool Harbour. Oh, you may ignore the other items in the pictures. Oh, so there's a picture. Hang on. Ooh. So he's got the phylactery on his hand. I've got the sword. I feel like it's a bit dangerous to go for those sort of things. Uh, I feel the thing that will help us get the pieces might we might need to know more information about that. But so the cerebral will go in that side. So I need to turn to section forty-one. So I'll do that now. Section forty-one C. <laughs> says the lich. And let it sniff the odors of magic. It will tell you of the object's function. The head also has some sacramentary gifts. What does that mean, you ask? An item to history clings to it like trailing cobwebs. Personalities are those who own it. Traces of strong emotion felt in its presence. The cerebral can sometimes tell us such things. Speak for your owner, cerebral. The shrunken head opens its mouth. Its lips flop like rubber. A baritone voice emerges. A real voice, not telepathic like the lich's, amazes you. It's very nice to meet you. We'll serve you well. How can a head so small have a voice so loud and deep? speaks too loudly. The lich continues, Tuck it inside your armor. Take care of it and do not let it drink alcohol. Now I must go. Turn to 20A. Abrixa raises an arm. Its fingers twist curiously and the burning odour of phosphorus fills the air. Light forms at the lich's fingertips, feet and crown. In an instant, they flicker the length of its limbs and down its robed body. Remember, 
true life shall be yours, life of glorious destruction. In a flash, Abrixa disappears. You stand alone. A cool breeze blows in from the harbour, driving the dust from your hair. You think of the Lich's words, and that name, Harant. It rings in your mind, triggering a memory from your former life. Read the first section of your memory trace. When done, return here. Oh, that's exciting. So, my first memory trace, that is 158D. Harant, you ventured down beneath the ruins of an ancient castle, seeking... What? A beautiful woman beside you wearing a medallion with the sign of a gauntlet. Others behind you, a muscular thug, a bearded man in robes, and a short, silent one, barefoot, dim in the shadows. They're dead now. Harrant. Harrant killed them all. All right. Good to know. Midnight, the lich said. You look around, noticing that you can see as well now as in daylight. You can exist without food, drink, sleep, or even air. You have 24 hours to stop the liches before they destroy Waterdeep, and you suspect you will need every second. Well, don't forget your boon companion here, says the weasel skull. Anything better to do than get started? Or shall we stand around moaning a while longer? Tucking the weasel skull and the shrunken head inside your armour, you walk away from your grave. The city of the dead stretches before you, and Waterdeep beyond it. Somewhere out there... You say to yourself, somewhere are twelve pieces of the staff of Waterdeep. Twelve dust motes in a desert. If a lich couldn't find them, how shall I? Stop and nonsense, says the weasel skull. You haven't tried yet. What's the head for, anyway? Obviously, the cerebral can be of no help, or the lich would have used it to find the staff. Miserably, you hold it up, thinking to close off that avenue early and move on to other ideas. Cerebral, you ask mentally. Where is the staff of Waterdeep? The shrunken head dangles by its filthy hair, twisting slowly in the breeze. Finally, it speaks. At least one piece is that way, in the Northern Quart. Another piece or more in the Khazar Ward. Also in the Zoven. It drones a long list. There seem to be pieces of the staff in most wards of the city, along with several in the harbour and countryside. However, it doesn't name all twelve pieces, and you suspect you will not find these. If you know where the pieces are, why did you not tell your owner, the Lich? Pieces are only detectable by those good of heart. Good heart uses me, I talk, part of the enchantment are guarding them. Very powerful spell. Where do you start? So, my choice is, will I begin my mission by exploring the City of the Dead, or by looking out on Waterdeep itself? I think, in the spirit of spooky season, we should always start close to home. So I think we should start by looking in the cemetery itself. So we'll start by exploring the City of the Dead, which is section 41A. The tallest structure in the cemetery is a warrior's monument. You climb over a stone troll, place a foot carefully on a bugbear's snout, Hoist yourself up and grab a hero's belt, then sit on the anonymous commander's shoulder. Sixty feet above the brown grass, you look around. The City of the Dead has never been more appropriately named, you think. In the vast cemetery, you hear no sound but the wind, and see little movement but scudding clouds overhead, skeletal tree branches, and patches of the effluvian. 
an unholy stillness. During winter, Waterdeep bundles up, ties down the shuttered windows, and endures months of misery. Nobles and their children evacuate to warmer climates, and commoners stay indoors, avoiding others' hot tempers as well as the frigid wind. In this northern latitude, the sun crawls above the horizon only briefly, never very high. With the perpetual cloud cover, not even the living find it easy to tell the day from night. But even in winter, the City of the Dead remains a popular meeting place for Warder Harvians. As close to a major park as the city offers, its landscaping and clean walkways make up for the sad sight of crypts and mausoleums. And some of the buildings are attractive in a monumental way. Seeing them, you notice their names drifting into your mind. The Hall of Heroes, resting place of Waterdeep's greatest warriors, stands nearby. Alongside it, the seldom-visited Hall of Sages, the final home to many of the city's learned scholars. Beyond both sits the Spartan crypt of paupers and outcasts, the city of the homeless. The Lich said you could reach the underground artefact through there, but be wise to gain some pieces of the staff of Waterdeep before venturing into the enemy's lair. You look around at the tombs, large and rich, small and stolid, all solemn, all ageless. Perhaps, you say to yourself, there are other restless spirits here who may help me on my quest. Ooh, that is a good question. So, I have a choice. I can either go... Well, I have several choices of where to go next. I can either visit the Hall of Heroes, visit the Hall of Sages, the House of the Homeless... I could go to Agaran's statue, or I could go back to my own grave. Or you may go to the wall around the cemetery, climb up and look out on the city of Waterdeep, so I can go back to that other option. <sighs> so I feel like, with that last sentence, it feels like I should be getting like an adventuring party together, like the Hall of Heroes. That's what it sounds like. I think, however, I need to know more information about the staff of Waterdeep. And it sounds like the best place to go for that would be the Hall of Sages. House of the Homeless, that's endgame. So don't need to go there just yet. There's the statue that was mentioned in the prologue. Don't think I need to go there. That could be quite depressing. I've just come from my own grave. And I don't want to look out on Waterdeep just yet. I think better to stay here. So I'm going to go to the Hall of Sages to find out some more information. I've got to go to 155F. All right. <laughs> The three stories of the Hall of Sages overlook a peaceful lake. The pundits, gurus, and learned instructors who rest in this narrow building would enjoy the view. The lake reflects the sky and the universe beyond it. They've always professed that the entire universe was their realm of study. The Hall of Sages is perhaps the most exclusive tomb in the City of the Dead. Only a few score scholars have been deemed worthy enough to join its august company upon death but it is seldom visited for that at all. Yet, if any of the spirits there rest less than quietly, they may give you help or information. Will you pass under that granite arch inscribed with the simple legend, Knowledge, and enter the Hall of Heroes, or go elsewhere? I I've already made the choice. <laughs> I'm going in. And so, I guess it's always like confirming whether you want to do that. You know, it's like, are you sure you want to do that? How do you do that? That sort of thing as a DM. I'm finding I'm really annoying because like, I've had to go all the way to the back of this uh, book. So I'm going to confirm again that I do definitely want to go into the Hall of Sages. So we're now going to turn to 22A, which is now at the beginning of the book. Ugh, for goodness sake. Somehow you think there would be a good deal of fog in the Hall of Sages, even in the best circumstances. The effluvium, 
though it has seeped into every cranny in this crypt and then moved on, did not bring with it this hall's stale atmosphere, or the dust, or the cobwebs in the corner. Those have most likely been here since the crypt was built, a suitable match for the cobwebbed scholars interned within. Another new arrival, along with the effluvium, is the odd transparent figure perched on a high stool and stooped over a high desk. They peer up to you from beneath their visor, then smiles. Launching themselves off the stool, they come forward to greet you. Bumbley, madam, they say in a voice that cracks like notepaper. Bumbley is my name, secretary and scribe to the sage's spirits. Three sages are in today, madam, all are bursting with fascinating information. A mission to parlay with any sage of your choice, one thin magical item, madam. It's a lot to take in at once, and they speak none too slowly either. What sort of magical item do you want? You finally ask. What do you do with them? The ghost wrinkles its pellucid brow. Admission is one item to see the sages, madam. That follows. Even in your amnesia, you recall that ghosts are single-minded. They follow no logic in undeath, merely parrot the obsessions of their life. This spirit probably has no more use for the items than any dead person, but will keep asking for them through eternity. I recall no legends that the Hall of Sages is haunted, you say. Nor I, madam. Just do our best to keep out the haunts. Just me and the sages. Not all of them in at all times, madam, but now and then a body will up and start murmuring, if you take my meaning. If you want to speak with one, you will need to pay now, madam. Pay me. You dare not give the secretary ghost your shrunken head or sword, and it wouldn't want the weasel. If you have another magical item in your list of possessions, you may give it to Bumbley, or you may try talking to the sage without paying Bumbley. Ignore him and look around, or leave. Hmm. And then it says, when you are free to look around, you may investigate the ghost, the desk and saw, the book, the quill, the paper and ink stand. So there's options out for me to know if I'm free to look around, but currently I don't. My, so my choices are currently, I give Bumbley a magical item, which I do not have, so that option is off. I could try talking to the sages without paying Bumbley, which I think might not be a good idea, because I kind of need all the friends I can get. I can ignore him and look around, or I can leave. I think I'm going to ignore him and look around... I feel that's better than trying to go talk to the sages because it didn't say about anything about paying for uh, looking around this entrance hall. So I'm going to do that. So that is uh, 90F I need to go to. Bumbley had closed the book, but when you lay your hand on it, it springs open to the point where the ghost was writing in it. The ink is still wet, but you cannot make head nor tail of this scribble. However, turning back a page, you recognise words and figures written in a different hand. They seem to be accounts, 25 for volume on undead, 2 for new bottles of ink, 10 for information on A, 16 for collection of daffodils. So, taking an interest in bookkeeping now, asks the weasel. You scan farther down the page but learn nothing more. When you draw back your hand from the ledger, it slams closed. Return to 22A to keep looking around or leave 149D. Ah, I read that wrong. 10 for informant on A. Well, I wonder if A is our lich friend. Mmm, somebody tailing A? So there'll be somebody who knows that I exist now. Alright, the choice. Uh, I'm going to go back to 22A. Let's see what else there is around. So I've investigated the book, paper, quill, penknife, and the ghost themselves. Um, well, the ghost is currently gone. I assume Bumbley will come back if I go somewhere else. Oh, and the stool and desk are gone currently. Uh, 
I might as well go and look on the other floors. So, yeah, I'm going to go upstairs and look on the other floors, and that's 140E. That's where I'm going to go next. Moving upstairs in the Hall of Sages, you pause at the window of the second story to look out onto the lake below. A clouded mirror. It reflects nothing but the overcast sky. To your undead eyes, the City of the Dead looks equally grey at all hours, night or day. You would not even know whether it is night or day, but that the Cerebral is keeping track of the time for you. Pretty view, says the weasel. Let's spend ten or twenty hours standing here looking at it, shall we? Growing inwardly, you move up to the second story landing. This floor is much like the one below, except you hear muttering from two tombs, those of Scrylom the Learned, and at the other end, Donal Bain the Ruthim. Ruthathim? I don't know. If you don't wish to talk to either of these sages, go back downstairs and leave. Well, I'm up here now. Um, so we've got two choices. We can go to Scrylom, or we can go to Donal Bain. Uh, they both sound pretty good. Uh, let's go for... I tell you what, I've not done any dice rolling yet. Uh, let's go for odds is Scrylom, and then evens is Donal Bain. Unbelievably, I just rolled a 12. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> I'll probably be very useful later on. Oh no, it's not. It's the other way around, isn't it? The higher the number, uh, I don't hit. So, okay, so it's an even number. So I'm going to talk to Donald Bane then. Uh, so that's 15A I need to go to. A lengthy plaque on the tomb of Donald Bane describes their birth on the distant island of Ruathim, due west of Waterdeep. His youth as a cabin boy on a merchant trader, arrival in Waterdeep, apprenticeship to a scribe from whom he learnt at a very late age to read and write, and his later speed in mastering the writings of old philosophies and sages. You can tell by the dates on the tombs that he lived a long life, the only way to explain the equally long list of works mentioned in the epitaphs. You sit down. Tentatively, you think, Hello? Hmm? Is that you, Bumbley, you lout? Oh, sorry, I gather you are a fellow ghost then. No one but undead seems to be able to talk with me nowadays. I deduce that I have become, in some fashion, undead myself. But an unconventional aspect, Hereforth too unreported. By the way, you didn't give Bumbley some magical thingy, did you? Uh, well, he pulls that on everyone. Makes them think that he's our secretary. He was only secretary to that senile bodderer over there, Scryblom. Oh, what brings you to see this old shade? You speak with Donald Bain for a long time. He proves to be quite clear-headed and stable, though given to interrupting you. In Undeath, he has found a new opportunity to study the phenomena. No records made by the living ever gave me to believe that the undead communicate amongst themselves, and yet so it is, he says. It is some form of telepathy, evidently undetectable by living sensitives. I have found, he continues, that the walking dead, as they lack living spirits, cannot perceive beauty in any form. They see masterpieces of paintings as mere blobs of colour. Listening to melodious music means they only hear dead, hollow tones, and so on. Vampires are evidently an exception, though I currently lack support for this statement. If true, perhaps it is their regular diet of living blood that produces the difference. Donald Bain has heard nothing of the liches Abraxa and Horrent, nor of their plan to destroy the city. You bring up another matter that has troubled you. Wise one, are not all the undead evil? So the records indicate, or they would be unconcerned with living at best. Yet I do not feel evil, 
and you do not sound so. Speaking personally, when you lie in a coffin all the time and think, matters of good and evil cease to apply. Foggy terms, anyway. As for you, I can only speculate. Unschooled am I in necromancy. I can say nonetheless that the spells for raising the dead are intricate as any in magic. A single misspoken word, diminution of will, or untowards gesture can bring about unforeseeable results. Almost always the results are evil, but if one who has raised you made a mistake in the right direction, if you follow me, you could end up lily-white and pure. Or a god could have intervened. And yet, given the source of the undead's energy, well... Never mind. I should not talk of such things. You can sense he's holding back. What, wise one? Well, the conventional wisdom holds that undead derive their sustenance from an alternative dimension called the negative material plane, hence their ability to drain the life of living things. That may be true as far as it goes, but it does not address the forces that create conduits between that plane and this. I have come to think, well, again, never mind. Please, tell me, sir. No, it would be uh, too hard to... Uh, please, go now. Puzzled, you leave the tomb. Donald Bain has told you there is no point in talking to another sage. You go back downstairs. We return to 22A to keep your investigation, or leave the Hall of Sages. Hmm. I think I should go see that other sage. This guy's not giving me the full story. But at least I know not to give Bumbley anything. That's hilarious. <laughs> Alright, I'm going to do that. So I go back downstairs, 22A. And I'm going to go back upstairs without paying Bumbley. Go to 140E. Okay, back upstairs. Alright, so I'm now going to go to... I'm going to go to Scribelom. So that's... I need to go to 46A. According to the letters carved in the granite over his tomb, Scribelom the Learned learnt lived all of his life in a small village near Waterdeep, studying the native flora and writing hundreds of scrolls about them. From his tomb issues an endless stream of mumbling. Uh, greetings, wise one, you say, sitting down. Ah, what? Oh, hello. Perhaps you've come to talk about flowers. Oh, wise one, I seek information that may help me save the city from destruction by an army of the undead. Ah, uh, oh, ah. Well, the undead are in general very bad for flowers, really. First, they do not decay as quickly as is usual, so the roots cannot absorb their nutrients. And then they dig their way out of graves, disrupting the topsoil and the root structure. And I suppose they also trample about on the blooms a good bit, now that I think on it. Perhaps you know something that wards off the undead, you interrupt, a little desperate now. I understand that garlic is to protect against vampires, for example. Oh, yes, I suppose so. Yes, garlic, though, is seldom found in this climate, is often more seen as a wild perennial at the edges of the forest of Tenir. You seem to be getting nowhere. Will you just sit and listen and hope he eventually says something of importance? You notice another stream of murmuring at the end of this floor from the tomb of Donald Bain. Will you visit it instead? Sounds like I'm not getting anywhere. I don't want to waste time. I think I've already wasted an hour here. So I think I'm going to leave the Hall of Sages and see if I can find anything else on my quest. You stand outside the Hall of Sages. You only wish you could breathe or smell something beautiful, for the musky odours of dusk hang in your nostrils. If you haven't already, mark off half an hour for the time spent in the hall. 
we look around the Hall of Heroes, the House of the Homeless, or go elsewhere in the City of the Dead. For each of these takes half an hour apiece. Or you may go to the walls of the cemetery and head for the City of Waterdeep. This step essentially takes no time. Okay, so I've got half an hour in. Cool. Next, um, might as well go to the Hall of Heroes, right? The sages were a little bit helpful, but not too helpful. They're hiding something, but... Oh well. Hall of Heroes, then.